reading of our scripture from this morning as we start the book of First Peter. We will be looking at the book of John. John chapter 1, verses 35 through 42. The next day again, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two, of his, the two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? And he said to them, Come, and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. And then also from the book of John, chapter 21, verses 15 through 19. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to them, tend my sheep. He said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because, because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you. And carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. Thank you. You may be seated. Yeah, Will pointed out that... uh... It makes no sense to start in John when we're talking about First Peter. But what I want to do today is fill in the gaps between what Will just read from John 1 and then John 21 and f- take a journey with me um, regarding what happens to this man, Simon, in between those two passages so that we have kind of a personality uh, overview and understanding of this man who wrote these two letters that we'll be looking at over the next probably few or several months. And it's just a sketch of these three years of Jesus sculpting this stone from Simon to Peter. And I'm plumb dumb excited about this. Um, just to be honest with you, and I'm going to try to get through it as quickly as I can, but hey, 
Yeah, you know. Um, so I, there's literally so much scripture in this, it's not in the presentation. I didn't have time to put all the scripture in the presentation, and I've never done that before. Uh, we've had a lot before, but we got a lot today. So if you've got a Bible or an app that has a Bible on it, keep it in front of you, and I'll kind of throw out there where I'm at. Or if you're taking notes, you can jot down the references. But we start here uh, back in John 1 where this guy, Simon, uh, meets this guy named Jesus. And what happened was Andrew, one of the two of John the Baptist's disciples that was standing there when John said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, Andrew Runs to follow him and said, hey, where are you staying? Follow me. He, Andrew's got to run and find his brother, a man named Simon. And if you'll see here, now keep, keep track of Simon and Peter as we go through this journey. Okay? So one of the guys that says is Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother in the name of Simon, which is our guy Peter. Andrew finds Simon and says, we have found the Messiah. Now, time out... This is a big deal. Okay? So Simon says, the Messiah? You found the Messiah. Yes. Come. So Simon's like, sign me up. Sign me up. I want to meet the Messiah. And when, so when he meets for the first time this man Jesus, Simon shows up. And Jesus says that Simon will be called Cephas. Now, I don't know about you. Have you do you know anybody... Like the first time you meet them, they call you by a nickname that they just come up with on the spot. <laughs> big J. I'm like, what, what, why would you call me Big J? I'm, I'm not big. And yes, J is the first letter of my name, but why would you call me that? Or, hey, Baldy. You know, well, no, don't call me that either. You don't know me well enough. There was a guy that I worked with at Mankin Equipment years ago, and he was a big guy, and he was Mike. And so he'd walk in, i like, Big Mike, how you doing, buddy? Well, one day he said, you know what? I don't like it when you call me Big Mike. So little Jay didn't call Big Mike Big Mike anymore. He called him Mike. Uh, he was actually a cage fighter, literally. He, he did mixed martial arts and was a cage fighter. So little Jay didn't call Big Mike Big Mike anymore. But, but, but Simon shows up and this guy he's never met, who he thinks is the Messiah, says, you are Simon, you will... Next slide. You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas. Now, Jesus just renames him. And he's like, okay, well, I'll, I'll give him a little bit of room because he's supposed to be the Messiah. Andrew had brought his brother to meet this rabbi from Nazareth, which was one strike to begin with because nothing good comes from Nazareth, right? Claiming that Jesus was the Messiah. And again, this thing about the Messiah, that's, that's a big deal. The Jews had been waiting for a long time for the long-promised deliverer to come and set them free from foreign oppression and liberate the nation of Israel and reestablish them, the Jews, God's people, as the power in the world. And for this Messiah to be their forever king reigning and ruling over all for all time. So that is what Simon had shown up curious about. His brother had said they had found the Messiah. And now that supposed Messiah is renaming Simon. By the way, Simon in the Hebrew means heard, like ear. Hear with the ear, heard. 
And boy, you're going to hear a lot from Simon, right? So I heard that. I heard that, Simon. Heard that. Heard that heard. So, and then Cephas in Aramaic means rock. And the Aramaic translated to Greek is Peter. So that's how we get from Cephas to Peter. It's from Aramaic to uh, Greek. And both words, Cephas and Peter, mean rock. So he goes from herd to rock. Herb Hodges says that God sees us with double vision. He sees who we are and who he will make us. And that's exactly what Jesus is proclaiming here. You are Simon you will be Peter. Well, some time passes, and we see in Matthew, which Mark records it too, that Jesus comes to Simon's workplace and makes a major announcement, a major call to Andrew and Simon. Matthew 4, 18, I about went there automatically. I was going to go there. It's not there. There's too much, okay? Matthew 4, 18 to 22. While, work, while walking by the Sea of Galilee, Jesus saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter. How did that happen? Jesus did that. And Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately, they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James the son of Zebedee and John his brother, in the boat with Zebedee their father, mending their nets, and he called them. Immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. So this, from this we see that Simon and Andrew were fishermen, a family business apparently. And Jesus just shows up at their office one day and says, Hey, quit what you're doing and come be with me. Now, this was a rabbi, the rabbi Jesus, and what the rabbi is doing here is calling men to be his disciples. And this was common practice in those days. Jewish rabbis would have groups of men or young boys who literally followed them around, shared life with them, and took their teachings to the point that the life of the rabbi was to become the life of the disciple. If you're familiar with Ray Vanderlaan at all, he's got one series. He's, he's a Bible teacher who teaches in the promised land about things that are uh, specific to that. It's great. We've, we've watched a couple of those videos here. But he said that literally they were supposed to follow so closely to their rabbi that the dust of the rabbi kicked up on them. And they were supposed to take on his life like that dust kicking up onto them. That's what these rabbis did. They would call people to be their disciples. And those disciples followed them around in the dust of the rabbi so that the teaching of the rabbi became the life of the disciple. So this wasn't odd or weird. This happened all the time. Now what's odd is that this rabbi, who was literally God in the flesh, was calling lowly fishermen to be his disciples. If you were working the family business as a fisherman, you probably had been passed over in the rabbi draft. You weren't invited to the combine and you weren't on the board. You're not going to get drafted. Okay? The rabbis hand-picked their disciples and if you're fishing, you hadn't been picked. Okay? You hadn't made the cut and now you worked with your hands, usually in the family business or the family subsistence the rest of your days. So Andrew and Simon and James and John were fishermen. And they would have always been fishermen, but Jesus. So we learn something else from Matthew, Mark, and Luke next about Peter. And we'll look at it from Luke's account in Luke 4, 38 and 39. Later, it says that Jesus arose and left the synagogue and entered Simon's house. 
Now Simon's mother-in-law, mother-in-law was ill with a high fever, and they appealed to him on her behalf. And he stood over her and rebuked the fever, and it left her, and immediately she rose and began to serve them. Now what can we learn from this? Well, one thing is Simon was married. And his mother-in-law lived with him, it would seem. They're at Simon's house, and Simon's mother-in-law is sick in the bed. And Jesus comes to Simon's house and heals his sick mother-in-law. Now keep that in mind. This man had just left the family business to follow Rabbi Jesus, and he had a family to support. Hmm. Well, apparently, Peter doesn't go cold turkey on the fishing stuff. I mean, he does have a family. So we see another fishing interaction in Luke 5, 4 to 11. And he, being Jesus, when he had finished speaking, said to Simon, this, they're out and they're fishing, and Jesus says, Hey, Simon, put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing, but at your word I will let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both the boats so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid, from now on you will be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. And I would add, again. Now look at that. Back in verse 8, Simon calls Jesus Lord. Which could be as minor as sir in the language. But when paired with him asking Jesus to depart from him because he was a sinful man, it seems to point to more than just sir. Lord here appears to mean Lord. And then in verse 8 again, what does Luke call Simon here? Simon Peter. Aha. We've started kind of a move, right? He had been Simon in verses 4 and 5, but here at this major development, and it is a major development, Simon becomes Simon Peter. He's starting to change, isn't he? He recognizes something about Jesus and he says, I'm a sinful man and you are the Lord. Now from this time, things really start to pick up. Simon or Peter or Simon Peter or Cephas really starts to see some stuff. They've they've dropped their nets for the second time and they're following him pretty much full time. And it's a little gospel information here, okay? If you're looking to follow the right chronological progression of what happens, read the book of Luke. Because Luke says plainly that he set out to set all this in order. Okay, He says that plainly in his gospel. Um, None of the other gospel writers are that concerned with chronology. And there's times when they might mention something that's in relation to something else, but it happened at a different time. So be mindful of that when you're reading the Gospels. Luke is the one who said, I want to set it out in order. Now, it's also important to know that Mark has historically been called Peter's disciple. So Mark's Gospel has a lot of firsthand stuff from Peter himself. You could almost say that Mark is Peter's Gospel. Almost. 
And of course, both Matthew and John were in the trenches with Simon slash Peter as disciples of Jesus. So there's a lot of good stuff about Peter and them too because they were right there in the mix. It was first-hand knowledge. They saw it themselves. But just know that Luke has things laid out chronologically if you're trying to put things in historical order and watch Simon's journey to being, becoming Peter. That's just kind of an aside there. So now that Simon, Simon Peter, has left his nets and is following Jesus full time, he starts to see Jesus perform many miracles. Water into wine. Uh, Jesus teaches in parables. In Luke 8, he calms a storm, Jesus does. He casts a legion of demons from a man. He even raises a man's daughter from the dead. One could guess that this was quite the impressive show that Simon was seeing. And he's like, aha, this is the Messiah. This is the guy. And somewhere in all of this, we see a major development for this herd rock. Matthew 14 Verses 25 to 33. Matthew 14, verses 25 to 33. Watch this. The disciples are out rowing in a storm. Jesus has been praying on a mountain. In the fourth watch of the night, in verse 25, Jesus came to them walking on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, It's a ghost! And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them saying, Take heart, it is I Do not be afraid. And Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. And Jesus said, come. I don't know if he had his lips stuck out like that. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. Now, we've read that a blue million times. But stop a minute. Lord, if that's you, you command me to come to you on the water. And Jesus says, come. And Peter hops out of the boat and walks on the water to Jesus. Now, this guy's got a lot of faults and flaws and warts, and, but doggone it, this is pretty cool. But when he saw the wind, which is impossible, that's another miracle. When he saw the wind, he was afraid and beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, Oh, you of little faith. (laughs) Why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. And those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. Now, I think this little few-minute interaction here serves as a perfect microcosm of Simon and Peter. Peter's time as a disciple of the human rabbi Jesus. From faith to failure. From faith to failure. Faith to failure. Faith to failure. Faith to, that, this is the story of the progress from Simon to Peter. These three plus years, it's him, wow, look at Peter's faith. To, oh, look at old Simon. He failed again. And here in just a few minutes, he walks on the water, and then he starts looking around him, and he forgets to keep his eyes on Jesus, and he sinks in the sea. And it's my autobiography, right? Mine too, right. Herd and rock 
in the storm and on the water. By the way, rocks sink, by the way. I don't know. So that's a major move, followed by a major failure. Now, watch this next major move, which is another great and terrible showing in Matthew 16, verses 13 to 20. So we went from Matthew 14 to 16, and again, Matthew is not necessarily in chronological order. Matthew 16, 13. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, well, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, which means son of Jonah or John. For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. Wow. Simon, son of Jonah, or Simon, son of John, Simon Bar-Jonah, was heard, for sure, Simon means heard, and is here now proclaimed by Jesus to be Peter, Petros, the rock. And Jesus says that upon this rock, upon this Cephas, this Petra, he, Jesus, would build his church. Now we hear church and it's just, oh yeah, church. This was, they knew the word, but this thing called the church wasn't really a developed mindset. They had no ecclesiology at this point. And Jesus is starting it. And he's saying, upon this rock, I will build my church. Now be careful. I am convinced that it was Peter's confession of Jesus as Lord that had been supernaturally revealed to Peter that's the rock of the foundation for the church, not Peter. Listen, this guy is too much like us. We've seen too many times already in this brief overview that he's just a man with wildly erratic spiritually, spiritual development. So no, Peter wasn't the rock, but his revealed confession is. You are Peter, and upon this rock, so he's using wordplay there, this rock of this confession of me being the Christ, the Son of the living God, upon that confession I will build my church, Jesus says. And I'll give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Who? Y'all. Not, not Simon, not Peter. Y'all. The church. I'll give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. So Peter wasn't the rock his revealed confession is. Now, right after this, Peter, you rock moment. See what I did there? Come on. Right after this, Peter stumbles again. So we just looked at Matthew 16, 13 to 20. Now we're going to look at Matthew 16, 21 to 23. So the very next verse. I'll build my church upon this rock, give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Verse 21, from that time Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter, the rock, took him aside and began to rebuke Jesus. 
That doesn't seem like a good career move if you're a disciple, apostle. Began to rebuke Jesus saying, far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you. But Jesus turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Now, (laughs) there's a name that we haven't seen for Simon or Peter yet. It's Satan. Means accuser. In verse 22, it says, Peter, the rock, begins to rebuke Jesus, saying, Know your role. A couple of y'all get that one. He begins to rebuke Jesus after Jesus starts foretelling his upcoming death by crucifixion. And Jesus says that this satanic reasoning is a hindrance to Jesus. So get behind me. For you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Wow! He goes from making the God-revealed confession that would be the bedrock of the church to being a satanic hindrance to Jesus from one verse to the next. That's our guy. This is Peter. This is Simon. That's our guy. Well, we got to kind of step on it here. we got to, you know, I'm watching my clock some, okay? So Peter, James, and John, who have become, who've kind of become Jesus' inner circle, those three guys get to see some things other people don't get to see. They get to see Jesus transfigured on a hillside, which must have been magnificent. Simon slash Peter and all the disciples and apostles see lots of other miracles, hear lots of other teachings, and they just have to be thinking, oh my goodness, it's really happening. He really is the Messiah. He really is the Son of the living God. And as they near the time of Jesus' departure, which they're not thinking about, they're thinking about kingdom, 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 King, king, kingdom, kingdom. As they get closer and closer to what will be Jesus' departure, they have to be thinking that all of this is going to conclude with Jesus exalted as king of kings and they're going to be ruling with him over everything. We're his handpicked men. He's the king of kings. He's the son of God. He's going to set up his kingdom and we're going to rule with him. Dude, we have hit the jackpot. We have won the lottery. They actually argue about who's going to be greatest in the kingdom of Jesus at least a couple of times to which Jesus has to kind of snap them back into his plan and not theirs. And then, after three, three plus years, the night before Jesus was to be crucified, at the final Passover of Jesus' earthly ministry, this happens. Matthew 26, verses 30 to 35. Matthew 26, 30 to 35. And when they had sung a hymn, I don't know which one it was, by the way, but I'd say it was probably written by Charles Wesley. (laughs) And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Then Jesus said to them, his disciples, you will all fall away because of me this night. For it's written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I'm raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter answered him, Though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Jesus said to him, Truly, I tell you, this very night, before the rooster crows, you, Simon, I hear you, you will deny me three times. 
Peter said to him, even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same. Yikes. Jesus looks Peter dead in the face and tells them that on this fateful night, before the rooster crows, that Peter will deny Jesus three times. And Peter's like, not me, bro. I would die for Jesus. I will die for you, Jesus. These other jokers might do something like that, but not me. Well, if you had to guess who's right, was it Jesus or Peter? Yeah. Well, after falling asleep with James and John in Gethsemane while Jesus prayed, and after hacking off a slave's ear when a crowd comes to arrest Jesus, we find Peter in the courtyard of the high priest during Jesus' sham trial there. And this is terribly painful to read. And we're going to read it from Mark's gospel. Why? Because this is probably Peter's self-report about what happened. Mark 14, verses 66 to 72. Painful, painful to read. And as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came and seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, you also were with the Nazarene Jesus. And in the face of a little girl, a little slave girl, but he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you mean. And he went out into the gateway and the rooster crowed. And the servant girl saw him again again to say to the bystanders, This man is one of them. But again he denied it. And after a little while, the bystanders again said to Peter, Certainly you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. But he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, Blankety blanket, you blankety blanks, I do not know this man of whom you speak. And immediately the rooster crowed a second time. And Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him, Before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down and wept. Matthew adds that Peter went out and wept bitterly. The message says he cried hard. That just doesn't work, by the way. He wept bitterly. From I would die before I denied you to blankety blank, I do not know the man of whom you speak. Now let me self-testify here. That's a really short trip, unfortunately. Jesus, I would die for you. I don't know, no Jesus, when it's convenient for me. So hold your judgment of Simon slash Peter and remember yourself, by the way. It's a short trip from I would die for you to I don't know who you're talking about. So, Peter and the rest of the disciples see the words of Jesus fulfilled when the Jews delivered Jesus over to the Romans to be crucified. Jesus, the God-man, hangs on the cross for six hours, then gives up his spirit into the hands of the Father, and Jesus dies. The Messiah, the promised one, God in the flesh, the Christ, the Son of the living God, is dead. Now, imagine being Peter. 
this was not what he signed up for, right? Messiah, kingdom, king, reigning, ruling, me with him, reigning, ruling. And I just acted like I didn't know him, and now he's dead. Imagine denying your closest friend or your wife or your husband right before you die. I don't know the jerk. And then they die. You're like, oh, oh. I can't imagine. Peter didn't sign up for a dead Messiah. Who would? And after so many spectacular successes and even more spectacular failures, now what? Now what am I supposed to do? Am I Simon? Am I Peter? Who the heck am I? What do I do now? I'll be Pete. No, I can't be Peter because the guy's dead. I'm a denier. I'm an embarrassing failure. And I'm scared because I think the Romans are going to come for me now. Because I got ID'd by a little servant girl in the gateway before I tucked my tail between my legs and ran off like a scared little puppy. So, Peter, or Simon, you may want to call him here, along with the other living disciples of Jesus, Judas had died by now, killed himself, because he had literally betrayed Jesus over into the hands of the Jews. Simon and the other living disciples locked themselves away to try to stay safe from the Jews and the Romans, who they just know must be gunning for them soon. Because they'd followed this guy for three years. There was no doubt who the apostles or disciples of Rabbi Jesus were. But something weird happens. While they're locked away, some ladies that they know who had followed Jesus with them, three days later, they show up in the locked house and they say, Um, uh... Uh, Jesus' tomb is empty. And they're like, what? And so Peter and John run to the tomb to see what in the world they're talking about. Luke 24, 10 to 12. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary the mother of James and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale. And they did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. They were right. Jesus is not there. His clothes are, but Jesus is not there. But now watch this. If you go to Luke 24, which is the tail end of the account of Jesus appearing to two disciples after his resurrection, these two disciples who were walking on the road to Emmaus. After Jesus reveals himself to them, these two return to Jerusalem and look at what they say in Luke 24, verses 33 and 34. So they, these two disciples who had just encountered, and it wasn't one of the twelve, it was two other disciples, after Jesus revealed himself to them, they rose that same hour, Luke twenty four thirty three, and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together saying, these two say, the Lord has risen indeed, now watch this, and has appeared to Simon. 
Then they told what happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. Now, this him appearing to Simon thing is not recorded in Scripture anywhere. It's mentioned here, and it's also mentioned in 1 Corinthians 15. It's confirmed by Paul in Paul's famous resurrection chapter, 1 Corinthians 15, 3-5. Paul says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas. Then to the twelve. Here, Paul says that the resurrected Jesus appears to Cephas, appears to Peter, and then to the twelve. Now, what in the world happened here? We don't know. That's the only two times that's mentioned. But there is some sort of appearing of the risen Christ to Cephas, to Simon, to Peter. We know it happened. Simon Peter interacted with the risen Christ by himself before any of the other disciples. Jesus came to him specifically and revealed himself to Cephas, to Peter, as alive. I wish we knew more about that. But we don't. But we know it happened. Because Luke records it and then Paul confirms it in 1 Corinthians 15. And it must have been commonly known in the church that the resurrected Christ showed up to Cephas by himself and said, Hey, Peter, it's me. I am alive. Hmm. Now, there are some other appearances of Jesus after he's resurrected. And that brings us to John 21, which is our final stop in this journey. So we're going to go back and we're going to read 21, 15 to 19 again. So let me set the scene. Peter said, hey, I'm going fishing, y'all. And everybody said, yeah, we'll come too. So they're out fishing and they had toiled all night. They hadn't caught anything again. Imagine that. And they hear a voice from the shore saying, hey, y'all, children, did y'all catch anything? No. And they look and they must have been middle-aged because they couldn't quite make it out. And they're doing this. And John says, it's the Lord. Well, Peter jumps out of the boat and swims to shore. Just love this guy. I love him. I love him. He's a mess like us, and I love him. So he swims to the shore, and Jesus has some fish over an open fire and some bread, and he's got breakfast made for him. Okay? When they had finished breakfast, John 21, 15, Jesus said to Simon Peter, the denier, the one he had appeared to by himself. And he says, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And he said to Jesus, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. Jesus said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he had said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Now, we won't get into the mechanics of linguistics and all of this. There's a lot to look at there. Verb tenses and words for love, but just look at it. 
Three times. You reckon that was coincidental? Three times Jesus asks Simon Peter, or as John calls him here, Simon, son of John. That's what Jesus called him. Do you love me? After getting an answer, Jesus tells him to feed my lambs, tend my sheep, feed my sheep. The threefold denial of Peter is addressed with a threefold questioning of Simon's, and again, note the love, note the, note the name, the questioning of Simon's love for Jesus. And also a threefold call to be busy about taking care of Jesus' sheep, his people. And then after that emotional blitz, verses. This starts in 18 18 and 19. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. So after all of that emotional stuff, and yeah, I get it three times. Yeah, I get you, Jesus. After all that, Jesus tells this Simon that while he used to dress himself and walk wherever he wanted, Simon was not his own anymore. The time was coming, Jesus says to Simon, when Simon would have his hands stretched out, be dressed by another, and carried to where he did not want to go. Jesus was telling Simon Peter that he, Simon, would be crucified at the end of his life and that that would glorify God. If you want to raise your hand and I say a prayer and you walk the aisle, come on up here and ask Jesus into your heart. You can have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And when you come up the aisle, we say, hey, you're going to get crucified at the end of your life. God bless you. (laughs) Peter, at the end of your life, you're going to bring glory to God by being crucified. Follow me. Mm. And that brings us to the end of our journey from Simon to Peter. And Peter does follow Jesus. In Acts 1, after Jesus' ascension, it's Peter, called Peter in the book of Acts, who leads the call to replace the dead betrayer Judas with another apostle. And when the Spirit falls in Acts chapter 2, who delivers the first gospel message? It's Peter. Peter stands up in the midst of everybody and starts preaching his guts out in about a six-sentence gospel presentation. Less is more, preachers. You say, whatever, you preach for an hour every week. (laughs) And 3,000 people believe and are baptized that day. Wow. Peter did that, following Jesus. And this post-resurrection, post-reinstatement, spirit-filled Peter becomes one of the pillars of the early church, preaching to both Jews and Gentiles, feeding Jesus' sheep and tending his lambs. And it's this Peter who writes the epistles of First and Second Peter, which we will dive into starting next week, Lord willing. Quite a journey, huh?
Well, let's turn our attention to application from all of this overview. We're going to be looking at three F's. Failure, forgiveness, and follow. From Simon to Peter, failure, forgiveness, and follow. First application point is failure. As we watched Peter's progression, Simon to Peter, we saw a long series of ups and downs, highs and lows, wins and losses. And right before Jesus dies, Peter cusses and says he don't know the man. Well, good, goodness gracious, God must be done with him, right? Listen. Failure is not terminal in the kingdom of God. Write that down. Peter shows us that beautifully, doesn't he? Anybody get saved and then fail? The answer is yes. Have you ever reached the point of despair and the voice of the accuser is screaming in your head and in your heart, you are a failure? You're like, man, I'm a jerk. I'm an idiot. I'm a dummy. God could never use me. What was I thinking? I'm not even a Christian, probably. Blankety blank blank. I don't know the man. Simon, do you love me? You know I do. Simon, do you love me? Yes, you know I do. Simon, do you love me? You know all things, Lord. You know that I love you. Feed my sheep. After all my failure? After all my sin? After running to some of these things over and over and over again and worshiping at the foot of the idol of sin, worshiping the me, myself, and I over and over and over, you're going to ask me to feed your sheep? Yes. Because failure is not terminal in the kingdom of God. You're like, but wait a second. We saw pre-Pentecost Peter a lot today. What about post-Pentecost Peter? Man, I, I bet he didn't fail at all. Yeah, right? Galatians 2, 11 to 14. Paul says, but when Cephas, the rock, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. What? That's bad theology, right? For before certain men came from James, the apostle, the great apostle in Jerusalem, Cephas was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas, the great encourager, was led astray by their hypocrisy. 
So they're eating with Gentiles, which is cool in the kingdom, right? That's fine. But when the Jews show up, all of a sudden the Jews go, oh, it's not cool to be eating with the Gentiles because they're unclean. And so the Jews go, oh, you're right. We, we won't eat with the Gentiles anymore. And Paul's like, hey, fellas, we got to talk. Hey, Peter, come here. Eye to eye, belly to belly, nose to nose. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, rock, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? Post-Pentecost, Peter failed too. James, in James 3.2, says, For we all stumble in many ways. Who's we all? That's y'all. That's us. We all, we all, y'all. We all stumble in many ways. Now listen to me, church. God is not surprised by that. Well, Peter also said, you are to be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. He sure did. Echoing the words of his Lord. And God knows that on this journey from Simon to Peter, from Peter to the kingdom, failure is a part of the Christian life. We all stumble in many ways. Is our sin okay? No. May it never be. No, 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 Paul says in Romans. It's not okay. God has something better for you than that. But in the face of our failures, application point two, there is forgiveness. Peter's failures, your failures, my failures as followers of Jesus are not okay, but they are forgiven. That thing that you're hiding that you hope nobody ever figures out or finds out, it's forgiven. Christian, if you are in Christ, listen, I set it up here when I was praying at the end of the music, all of your sins are forgiven. We all stumble in many ways. And because of the blood of Jesus, it's all forgiven. Listen, it's all forgiven. Romans 6, 6-7. We know that our old self was crucified with Him, Christ, in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin for the one who has died has been set free from sin. Now listen here, when it says body of sin, it's not talking about a human body, it's talking about a case laid out before us. And that case consists of all of your sins. And I promise you, the accuser of the brethren has it laid out in front of the Father. And that body of sin was brought to nothing. That's the best news in the universe. Literally. 
God doesn't look at it and say, I can't see that. He says, I see it. And the balance due is zero. My sin. Oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, was nailed to the cross. And I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, oh my soul. I see it. And I also see my son hanging on the cross, absorbing the wrath for those sins. And now I see my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Because all of my failures are forgiven. Colossians 2, 13 to 15. I love this. And you, that's use us, you all, y'all, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with Him, with Christ, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this He set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Him. Open shame. Hey, let me tell you about this jerk named Jason. He's a sinner. Shut your mouth. What mouth? There can be no accusation anymore. Shut your dirty mouth, devil. All of his transgressions are forgiven. Look at the cross. That's where they're hanging now. I will receive no accusation against this one because he is in Christ. And all of his sins were taken care of at the cross. Praise God. Where sin abounded, grace abounded all the more. There's plenty of failures, but from Simon to Peter and from Peter to the kingdom, there's also plenty of forgiveness from Simon to Peter and Peter to the kingdom. Praise God. Failure, forgiveness, and finally follow. When Jesus saw Peter at his nets initially, he called him in Matthew 4.19 to follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Now that following, Peter thought, was a call into the kingdom to journey with the Messiah into this great kingdom. And it was. But it didn't look like what he thought it was going to look like. It was not a call to health, wealth, and prosperity. It was a call to death. Right after Peter got called Satan, Jesus said this in Matthew 16, 24 to 26. Then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, where there is forgiveness for your failures, by the way, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. Try to hold on to it, you're going to lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? So the difference between Matthew 4, come follow me, I'll make you fishers of men, to Matthew 16, deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me, 
may not look like what we think about, may not look like what we signed up for when we signed the commitment card. But here's the deal. Following leads to progress. It leads from Gospels Simon to Acts Peter to Epistles Peter. The Epistles Apostle Peter. Which means that it led from self-interest and denying that self-interest to caring for others. To forgetting self and tending the sheep, tending the lambs, feeding the sheep. And that becomes the focus of the following over a period of time. Failures bring forgiveness. Forgiveness leads to following. And this is not an application point, but following Jesus leads to total freedom. Because I get to deny myself. It's not just a command, it's a promise. I get to deny myself. I get to take up my cross and I get to follow Jesus all the way into eternity future in perfect glory for Him and perfect good for me. You probably know this, but Peter was crucified at the end of his life. He followed Jesus all the way to that cross that Jesus said he would be crucified on. But Peter said, I'm not worthy to be crucified like my Lord was. So they crucified him upside down. That's what following leads to. An upside down cross for me and you. And we march to it gladly saying, I'm not worthy to die like Jesus died. Don't give me that same glory. I want the glory to go to him. Because I've denied myself. I've taken up my cross for many years now, Peter said. And I followed him. And yeah, do it upside down. He found perfect freedom from following Jesus. And so can you. I'm going to finish by reading the lyrics to a song by Michael Card. Oh, this is so good. This is a song called... Things we leave behind. There sits Simon, so foolishly wise. Proudly he's tending his nets. Then Jesus calls, and the boats drift away, and all that he owns he forgets. More than the nets he abandoned that day, he found that his pride was soon drifting away. And it's hard to imagine the freedom we find from the things we leave Behind. He tells the story of Matthew. Matthew was mindful of taking the tax, pressing the people to pay. Hearing the call, he responded in faith and followed the light and the way. Leaving the people so puzzled he found, the greed in his heart was no longer around. And it's hard to imagine the freedom we find from the things we leave behind. And here's the bridge. Every heart needs to be set free from possessions that hold it so tight. Because freedom's not found in the things that we own. It's the power to do what is right. With Jesus our only possession, giving becomes our delight. We can't imagine the freedom we find from the things we leave behind. We show a love for the world in our lives by worshiping goods we possess. Jesus has laid all our treasures aside and says, Love God above all the rest. Because when we say no to the things of the world, we open our hearts to the love of the Lord. 
And it's hard to imagine the freedom we find from the things we leave behind. And Peter's progress from Simon to Peter is that exactly. He wasn't perfect. He failed. He knew forgiveness, but he followed Jesus to perfect freedom, free from the world, free from the power of sin, crucified upside down and ushered into the very presence of God to hear, well done, my good and faithful servant. The same offer stands for us today. We're all failures. We're all sinners. And God offers forgiveness through the life, death, burial, resurrection, ascension, glorification of Jesus Christ. And if we put our faith in Him and follow Him, we will know freedom in Him from the things that we leave behind. So I'm excited to get into these letters and see how this unfolds now that we know Peter a little better. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much that having begun a good work in us, you will perfect it. And we see that so typified in the life of Simon who became Peter. And you announced it beforehand. You are Simon. You will be Peter. In the same way, God, you will not let us fall or fail to the point of not being able to attain forgiveness. You've already purchased it for us. And now you call us to follow you into perfect freedom. May we do so, God, by the power of your Holy Spirit as your word instructs us and as we encourage each other. And God, if there be somebody here this morning that needs to hear that initial call to know their failures and the forgiveness that comes through the life and death of Jesus and his resurrection, Holy Spirit, speak and bring life. And may they follow you from this point forward. And may we all. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand and receive a benediction? Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy to the only God our Savior through Jesus Christ our Lord. Be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. And all God's people said, Amen. You're dismissed, but stay and eat with us if you can.